0: Well, Rachel Ray and Bobby Flay. Paula and Emeril. Cupcake Wars and Iron Chef. Hey, the Food Network was launched in 1993. Today it's seen in over 90 million homes across America. A single television channel devoted to food and cooking. You know, it just proves to me... What an impact food has on our daily lives. And the same was true in Corinth. In fact, issues involving food had even crept over into the Corinthians worship. You see, a major debate had erupted in the church over this issue of food and eats. A major debate had started, had sparked in the church. It was... Creating division within the church there at Corinth, I have no doubt that if the food network had been in existence at the time, the controversy would have become prime time programming. Tailgate warriors would have shot live from Corinth. A messy food fight had started in the church, and Paul steps in now to make sure it gets chopped. Chapter 8 begins now concerning things offered to idols. Now, remember at this point in 1 Corinthians, we're listening to one side of a two-sided conversation. Paul is answering questions that were asked in a previous letter. And one of the questions involved meat that had been sacrificed to idols. You see, in the ancient world, there were two places you could buy your hamburger. You could go to the market and pay the premium prices or... You could buy beef from the pagan temples. When an animal was sacrificed, the priest got a portion, but then the leftover cuts were sold to raise revenue for the temple. And some of the Corinthian Christians were purchasing the bargain beef. Now, these Corinthians, they weren't idolaters. They wanted to have nothing to do with idol worship. They were just shrewd shoppers, coupon clippers, you might say. They hated the paganism and all that went with it, They just like getting their ground round on the cheap. But was this right? I mean, how can a Christian eat meat that he knows has been sacrificed to an idol and used in idolatry? You see, the idea of guilt by association had been firmly etched in their minds. If it was in the devil's freezer, how can it now be put on the grill for God? That was the question. And understand This isn't just an issue for the ancients. Oh, no. A recent article appeared in World Net Daily dated November 21st. It had this headline, Has Your Thanksgiving Turkey Been Sacrificed to Idols? The author reported that America's most popular turkey brand, Butterball, is now processing their turkeys according to halal, or Islamic standards. Millions of Americans might have eaten their Thanksgiving turkey, a turkey that had been blessed in the name of Allah. Now, you see, what if you were out shopping for a Thanksgiving turkey and the best buy was Butterball? Would it matter if it had been blessed in the name of Halal? I mean, you're going to fellowship with friends around the table. You're going to eat the meat to the glory of God in thanks to God for his blessings. The money you save might even go to your church. Is it okay to buy Butterball? Or would making that purchase make you a turkey in God's eyes? That was the question. The issue had divided the church in Corinth. Some had said yes, others had said no. But you see, everyone was adamant. They were right. Perhaps more important than the debate itself was the haughtiness of their attitude. They were all proud. Paul will deal with their beef but first he addresses their arrogance, he says. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. And I love this. He says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's interesting, there was knowledge on both sides of this issue. People on the don't-do-it side, they understood the dangers of idolatry. They understood that demonic forces were behind the worship of these false gods. Whereas the folks on the go-to-it side, they knew that idols were nothing but sticks of wood or hunks of stone. False gods didn't exist and the meat sacrificed on the altars was just that. It was just a piece of meat. The don't-do-its and the go-to-its each had valid arguments. The problem was that both groups failed to recognize the legitimacy of each other's concerns. You see, they were all proud. They thought, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Their knowledge had gone to their heads, not to their hearts. I remember years ago, the football helmet that my son wore. It contained a rubber bladder inside that you inflated with air. There was this little nozzle on the top of the helmet, and you stuck the needle in to inflate the bladder with air, kept it on his head. I'm afraid that most of us have a similar nozzle somewhere on our scalp up there. I mean, we learn a little truth, and it goes right to our heads. Now, we're right, and everybody else is wrong. In chapter 5, Paul uses leaven or yeast as a type of sin. And do you know why? Because yeast corrupts by puffing up. Sin causes pride. Understand, the most dangerous person in the church is the guy who knows just enough to think that he knows it all. Be leery of the self-proclaimed expert who feels it his duty to roam the church and police the saints. I love the old quote. Some people drink at the fountain of knowledge. Others just gargle. Hey, beware of the garglers, okay? And Paul says to both camps in the church, let some air out of your head and put some love into your heart. That'll do good. You see, the Corinthians, they had big heads, but they had small hearts. It's been said love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. We're not all going to always agree, but we can always show love one to another well I love Paul's conclusion verse 3 but if anyone loves God this is this one is known by him you see the key to knowing God ultimately is the heart not the head it was Blaise Pascal who wrote man's wisdom must be understood to be loved but God's wisdom must be loved to be understood head knowledge does have a place Academic knowledge has a place. It's important to our faith. But academic knowledge alone is not enough to save us. Saving faith requires heartfelt faith. He goes on, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. He says there's only one God. Idols are nothing but chunks of wood or stone. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Paul's saying other deities don't exist. They're false gods. But even if they did, our Father God, our Lord Jesus Christ, would still reign supreme. Our Father created all things. Our Lord Jesus sustains all things. If the pagan gods did exist, they would bow and obey the Christian God. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with conscious, conscience, consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. In other words, we're right with God through faith, not through food. You see, a right relationship with God is one through the work of Jesus Christ, not your efforts, not my efforts. Eat or don't eat makes no difference in your standing before God. You see, just because Satan uses an object like meat doesn't make it intrinsically evil. Here's an example for you. You know, Satan inspires songs. You know, there's songs, there's music out there that promotes evil and leads people astray. But the chords and the instruments that make the music aren't evil. In fact, they probably are the same chords and the same instruments that we use to praise God. A cord is amoral in and of itself. It's neither good nor bad. Whether it ends up good or evil is based on the motive behind its use. And the same could be said for other things like dancing or like tobacco or certain fashions or alcohol or gambling or a thousand other issues that often cause controversy in the church. You see, some matters aren't intrinsically black or white. They're gray matters. In 1928, Donald Barnhouse spoke at a Bible conference attended by around 200 young people and some prudish counselors. One afternoon, an older woman, she approached Barnhouse about an appalling, sinful, wicked practice that was going on among some of the young girls. You won't believe this. But they were walking around the camp with no stockings. They weren't wearing stockings. Can you imagine? These petty old ladies wanted the good preacher to rebuke this supposed spirit of compromise that had infiltrated the church. Dr. Barnhouse, he writes about the incident and he says, Looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, She didn't? I answered, In Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century. His answer stifled their protest and made them rethink the issue. You see, a Christian from America may take offense when his German brother drinks a beer, while the German is appalled when an American sister wears a two-piece on the beach. I mean, I know Christians who would never feel right about wearing shorts to church, but they go out after church and they light up a cigarette on the back stoop. Like meat sacrificed to idols, cultural taboos, they're a moving target. They alter from place to place, from tribe to tribe, from generation to generation. We need to remember that meat is nothing but meat. It's the attitude behind the use of it that varies from conscience to conscience. My conscience is not your master and your conscience is not my master. Jesus is the only master. And we should all follow the Holy Spirit in these gray matters. I like what Mark Twain once said. The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but they know so many things that ain't so. (laughs) That's well said. And I think this applies to the church. So many of us have been trained by legalism to believe things that ain't so. People impose rules and rituals, govern our conscience. Rather than the love of God, rather than the love for people, rather than be led by the Holy Spirit, rather than do things that bring God glory, you know, it's easier for us to just do what somebody told us to do. Paul doesn't encourage the Corinthians to violate their conscience but he does want them to retrain it according to the word of God, according to the love of God so that it's no longer governed by tradition but by truth. Notice verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Now remember verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We should live by love, not legalism. But we should also live by love, not some reckless version of Christian liberty. I mean, logically, you know that meat is just meat. But to a younger Christian with a weaker faith, what he eats may still be an issue in his life. Thus, logic shouldn't just be your only guide. What about love? Shouldn't you be guided by love as well? You know, some people are so right, they become wrong. I mean, if you insist on your liberty, knowing that it's going to lead your brother astray, what was right for you has suddenly become a sin. You know, it might be fine for you to drink a beer or for you to go dancing or for you to listen to certain types of music. Hey, you've grown in Christ. You've gained some discernment. You've demonstrated some restraint in your life. But what you're doing might lead a weaker believer who's been watching you go down the wrong path. If so, it's a sin for you to take that risk. Here's the test. You're free to pick it up only... If you're free to put it down, if you're free to put it down for the sake of someone else, then you're free to pick it up. If what you do harms a brother, then love says, don't do it. I have to admit that for years I I tried to make a point of my freedom in Christ. I love to shock people, I was sort of a Christian shock jock. But I've learned that there's one thing more important than making a point. You know what it is? It's winning a brother. We need to be governed by love, not some reckless version of liberty. Paul agrees in verse 12. He says, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's a big deal. That's a serious issue. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Wow. Wow, what a a bold statement that is. What a commitment that is. See the extent to which Paul is willing to go to love his brother? He says, I'll never eat meat again. Oh, my, think about that. Steaks, barbecue brisket, pork tenderloin, juicy ribs. No, Paul is prepared to give it all up for the faith of another believer. That's putting spiritual things first. I mean, do you really want to stumble a person Christ died to make stand? What a serious sin that must be. To sin against a weaker brother is to sin against Christ. Well, chapter 9 now continues this discussion, but moves to a different topic. Paul points to how he curtailed his freedom to keep the Corinthians from stumbling. He begins, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Now here Paul is proving his apostleship. And apparently one of the qualifications for being an apostle was being an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 21 confirms this requirement. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was his experience with the risen Christ. He continues, Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul points to the church in Corinth as evidence that he's an apostle. I mean, a thriving church was born in a wicked city. Obviously, God had blessed Paul's efforts. The church was a testimony to the legitimacy of his ministry. He says in verse 3, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? You see, Paul had not taken advantage of all the prerogatives afforded an apostle. There were certain liberties and rights that he possessed that he had foregone for the sake of his brothers. That's his point. An apostle got food and lodging when he traveled. He got travel benefits. It was common for an apostle to take a wife on his journeys. Cephas, or Peter, was an example of that. Paul, too, could have demanded certain apostolic rights, but instead he kept a low profile. And notice verse 3, before we move on, here's a big, big problem for the Roman Catholic Church, who believe Peter to be their first pope. If so, they got a married pope. Peter took his wife with him when he traveled. Peter had a wife. Reminds me of the newspaper um, the newspaper owner, the tycoon, who had three sons. He wanted to select a successor for his business. He was about to retire, but he wasn't sure which of his sons would end up being the best newspaper man. So he posed a test. He asked each boy to compose them of shocking, sensational three-word headline he could come up with. Well, the first son, he composed the headline, Pelosi Turns Republican. Well, that was sensational, unbelievable. But the second son bested him. His headline read, Ahmadinejad Becomes Jewish. Wow. But it was the third son who won the prize. His headline was just two words it said, Pope Elopes. <laughs> That was over the top. (coughs) Paul's point here is that as an apostle, he had rights that he had willingly forfeited. Other guys were married and traveled with their wives, but Paul stayed single. He writes in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now from its earliest days, the church supported its leaders financially so that they could devote themselves to full-time leadership. Paul was entitled to such support, but in Corinth, he waived his privilege. Acts 18, verse 3 tells us that he lodged in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla, and he helped make ends meet by working with them in their tent-making business. He was a tent-maker by day, he was a pastor by night. But here he questions the wisdom of this strategy, verse 7. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard? And does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Paul did work secular employment, but he did it out of necessity. It wasn't ideal. He says soldiers are supported by the people they defend. I mean, if a soldier in battle is worried about his family back home, whether they're starving or whether they're getting evicted, I mean, how can he focus on the fight? A distracted soldier is going to be a defeated soldier. He's better on the battle front if he doesn't have to worry about the home front. That's Paul's point. And the same is true for a pastor. I mean, how can he give himself completely to the study of God's word and to prayer for God's people if his own needs aren't met? Paul says you won't find a thirsty vine dresser. Why? Because he'll be drinking the wine. You won't find a dairy farmer with brittle bones. Why? because he's got all the milk he needs to drink. Obviously, a farmer gets fed from his crop, and likewise, a pastor should be supported from the financial support given to his ministry. I'm not saying a pastor should draw an absorbent salary, but so many churches pay him the bare minimum. I know churches that pray, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. And let me tell you, a church with that kind of attitude, they'll get what they pay for. Paul rebukes the Corinthians. They need to pony up and pay the pastor. Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses. Now, where in the world in the law of Moses did it say pay the pastor? Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 and On the surface, this is a verse that you wouldn't necessarily associate with paying the pastor. Apparently, the Holy Spirit's application of Scripture can be quite broad. Here's Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Well, I got news to all the pastors out there. The Bible just called you an ox. I I think that's a good illustration. I I don't mind being an ox. Slow, but plodding. Not necessarily smart, but faithful. I resemble that. Any good farmer, though, allows his ox to munch as he works. As he's threshing out the grain, what's he doing? He's reaching down and he's, he's eating some of the grain he's threshing. A weak ox is worthless. Therefore, the farmer allows him to feed as he works. And Paul is saying, just as feeding the ox is an expense of the harvest, Likewise, supporting the pastor is an expense of the spiritual harvest. He concludes Is it oxen God is concerned about? <laughs> in other words, why did God put this verse in is it? Because God really cares about a big, dumb, fat ox? Not hardly. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope, should be partaker of his hope years ago we had a member in our church who suggested capping my salary that's what they wanted to do put a cap on my salary this is far as he goes no more well i resisted that not because i want a lot of money that's that's not my motivation but because i need a lot of hope i mean why kill a man's incentive to work I told the elders, I said, you can raise my salary, you can cut my salary, but please don't ever put me in a situation where there's nothing I can do about my salary. That defeats a person. That produces a hopeless pastor. You see, Paul understood men and and how they think. Paul understood work and how it operates. Paul understood what motivates both. He says, he who plows should plow in hope. Give any worker an incentive and he'll work harder. Verse 11 if we, have shown, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Now here Paul capsulizes an important spiritual principle. If a pastor or a church helps you spiritually, then you should support him or it materially. If a church is adding to your life spiritually, if a church is helping you focus eternally, then it's a minor trade-off for you to help that church pay a few bills. Minor trade-off. And if this applies to all pastors and churches in general, it certainly applied to Paul in his dealings with the Corinthians. He tells them, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. I mean, Paul had founded this church. They were supporting other pastors. Was he not entitled to their support? But he had laid aside this right, lest someone accuse him of selfish motives. You see, Paul was not above accepting a church's financial support. In fact, on occasion, he gladly received it. But he didn't receive support in Corinth. Perhaps the Corinthians had been suspicious of crooked clergy. Maybe they'd been burned by someone in the past. Paul didn't accept support from them because he wanted them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he cared for their soul and not for their money. And you know, let me just say, this is how Calvary Chapel has patterned our approach to money over the years. Sure, this church has needs. Don't think for a second the power companies donating the electricity. I think we would be well within our God-ordained rights to be much bolder in our comments about giving. But for 30 years, for the most part, we've waived those rights. Why? Because we realize how often the subject of money has been abused in the church, how God's people have so often been manipulated, and for the sake of the gospel, we've limited our appeals. Calvary Chapel exists to meet your needs, not the other way around. We believe and we've always believed that God will take care of His church when His church is faithful to the ministry that He's called them to. Well, verse 13 tells us, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Again, he hammers on this point. Now, when an Old Testament worshiper brought his animal to the altar, the priest who administered the sacrifice got a choice cut of the meat after it had been altered. He was paid in beef. The Old Testament priest, in other words, was supported by the worshipers. Paul says, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul's affirmation that you need to pay your pastor. What was true of the Old Testament priests is true of a New Testament pastor. Pay them from the monetary sacrifices offered to the Lord. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Boy, love. Paul's saying, I would rather have died than run the risk of anyone casting me as some money-hungry preacher. Understand that. Reminds me of Billy Graham. Early in his ministry, after an Atlanta crusade, a newspaper ran a photo of Graham leaving the stadium with bags of money in his hands. He was innocent of any wrongdoing, but boy, did it look bad. And from that day forward, Billy Graham separated himself from the money. He put himself on a modest modest salary. He set up strict guidelines for how others would handle the ministry's resources. He wanted everything to be above board. He eliminated any appearance of impropriety. And this was Paul's attitude. He says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, I tell young men who come to me and and want to be pastors, I always tell them, if you can do anything else in the world other than pastor and be happy doing it, then don't pastor. You know, being a pastor isn't just a career move. It's a calling from God. Paul says he had no other choice. Of necessity, this was laid on him. Woe to him if he didn't preach the gospel. Paul would have been successful at whatever he tried, but satisfied, I doubt it, God called him to preach, and he would be happy doing nothing less. He says, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? that when I preach the gospel I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. In short, the ministry wasn't a job to Paul. He didn't serve for a paycheck. His goal was an eternal reward. Paul viewed his ministry as a divine responsibility or as he calls it, a stewardship. Once I watched a television special on the first 50 years of the NBA. One of the old timers was being interviewed. He said, the team owners were the dumbest people in the world. They paid us a salary, but they didn't have to. We would have played for free. Now, don't misunderstand. I appreciate my salary. I want to make that clear. And rather than dumb, you're being biblical to pay your pastor But I've always said this. I've said it from the start and I say it today. If you guys didn't pay me to pastor this church, I'd pay you for the opportunity. Pastor is the most demanding, taxing, challenging, intense job I know, but I wouldn't trade it for any other job in the world. It's what God has called me to do. Well, to me, if I don't preach the gospel, I thank God every day for the opportunity to communicate his word and to pastor his people. Verse 19 tells us, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Now, Paul's freedom in Christ was far-reaching. We've already discovered he was free from the law. He was free to eat meat. He was free from money and the love of money. But he was also free from the opinions of men. Paul didn't care one iota about what people thought of him. Paul's only desire was what they thought of his Lord in the gospel. He did care deeply about what they thought of Jesus, though. He was an ambassador for Christ. His goal was to lead people to Jesus. This is why he was always building bridges and forming platforms. He elaborates on this strategy in verse 20. He says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. not not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Paul was always faithful, but he was also flexible. And this is so important. If his audience was Jews, then he observed Jewish custom. He ate kosher foods. He kept the Sabbath rules. It wasn't the time or place to flaunt his freedom. I mean, why try to prove a point and lose a soul that Jesus died to save? But while talking to the Gentiles, he downplayed his Jewishness. You see, Paul knew that if he could fit in, he'd be in a better position to speak up for Jesus. Obviously, now we're not talking about compromising on moral or spiritual or biblical or ethical issues. We're simply suggesting that we need to adapt to the culture at hand. You see, most likely, it's the biker who's going to win the biker to Christ. Most likely, it's the salesman who's going to win his fellow salesman to Christ. It's the housewife who's going to save or or lead to the Lord her next-door neighbor, who's a housewife. Paul identified with the person that he wanted to reach. He found common ground and built a bridge. This is how the gospel gets spread. Traditionally, the church has, had, has approached prevailing culture in two ways. We've either isolated ourselves from it or we've been intimidated by it. Isolation or intimidation. We've either separated ourselves from it or we've just caved in and integrated ourselves into it. But there's a third option to culture, how a Christian should interface with culture. We should infiltrate. We shouldn't give up our values. We should hold them strongly, but we should get involved in the people around us, get involved in our lives. We should infiltrate the culture, become all things to all men that we might win some. I had some church folks say to me one time, I just can't stand the rock and roll music you guys do. Well, that's all right. But don't grumble when no young people want to come to the church anymore. I mean, what do you want? A cozy environment for the dignified and the sanctified and the petrified? Or a place where lost people who don't know Jesus will want to come and learn about God? An expert on evangelism, Donald McGraven, he once said, the world has more winnable people than ever before, but it's possible to come out of a right field empty-handed. And that's what's happening in many churches today. The world is hungry for the gospel, but the church doesn't always present it in a compelling way. I love the story of Hudson Taylor. When Hudson Taylor landed in mainline China, he struggled in his efforts to spread the gospel. He'd gone there to be a missionary. One day, though, the Lord told him to give up his Western clothes and customs and dress like the Chinese. He even cut his hair. Of course, this offended his fellow missionaries. But what it did is it allowed him to build bridges with the locals. It ended up yielding a great spiritual harvest. You see, he didn't go to China to reach missionaries, he went to China to reach the Chinese. And so he built a bridge in order to introduce them to the gospel. That's what you and I should be doing every day with the people around us, building bridges so that we can share with them the gospel. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, once said, I'd stand on my head and play a tambourine with my feet if I thought it would help me win one lost soul to Jesus. That's how I feel. I'll try anything. I've tried a lot of things. Anything other than sin, I'll try it if it'll help me reach someone for Jesus. I'd even get a tattoo, maybe, maybe. Chapter 9 ends with a trip to the stadium. Corinth was the site of the Isthmian Games. At the time, the competition in Corinth eclipsed even the Olympics in Athens. The Greek, whole Greek peninsula was a hotbed for athletic competition, And Paul apparently was a sports buff, for here he compares the Christian life to an athletic contest. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Hey, run in such a way that you may obtain it. 35 years ago, U.S. Olympic coach Brutus Hamilton compiled a list of accomplishments that he thought would be unachievable in the sport of track and field. He said no one would ever run a 9.2 second 100 yard dash. Coach Hamilton said that a three minute 57 second mile would be unthinkable. No one would ever throw a shot put more than 62 feet or high jump higher than seven foot one inch, or long jump, 27 feet, or even pole vault, more than 16 feet. And of course today, every one of those barriers have been shattered. And spiritually speaking, you think you can only go so far. You think you can only jump so high. You think you can only push so hard. But you too can go higher. And you can last longer. And you can be stronger than you once thought possible. All that holds you back is a lack of faith. Paul tells the Corinthians to stop toying with their faith. Get serious. Be determined. No one runs in a race unless he runs to win. Run so that you can obtain the prize. Don't just give up the first time you get knocked down. This past season, Maurice Jones drew a Jacksonville Jaguar Rushed for more yards than any other running back in the NFL. 1,606 yards, quite a season. But what we don't realize is that he got knocked down every 4.7 yards. He had to get back up and do it again 343 times. That total yardage didn't come easy. Nothing of any real value comes easy in this life. You know that. Hey, if you want to rack up some yards for Jesus, if you want to score a few touchdowns for Jesus, your faith needs to toughen up. My faith needs to toughen up. He says, and everyone who competes for the prize is tempering in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. I mean, when an athlete is training for an event, there's foods he won't eat, there's activities that that he won't participate in. He'll go to bed early. He'll get up early. He'll put himself through the rigors of training. Training requires discipline. And understand, the athlete does it from this flimsy little wreath he wears on his head. Whereas a Christian is after eternal rewards. How much more determined should we as believers be in our faith? He says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In the Greek, the phrase translated, discipline my body, literally reads, I blacken my eye. Paul goes to severe measures to stay focused on the prize. He pushes his body to do what it doesn't want to do. There's times when you don't want to read your Bible. There's times when you don't want to pray. There's times when you don't want to get up and come to church. There's certainly times when you don't want to cut that check and give of your offering to the Lord. We all go through those, those things. But Paul does whatever it takes to make his body do what it doesn't want to do. That's called training. And the Christian needs this mindset. You know, the difference for the Christian is that we already have it in our hearts to obey. We discipline our bodies to make them do what they really want to do. Jesus transforms our heart, but we still have to discipline our bodies so that our bodies will get in gear with our spirit. He says, He says, Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, all this requires such stringent effort because so much is at stake. You know, Paul worries that he could be disqualified from the ministry. Paul worries he could be disqualified. That after he had preached to others, after he had started churches, after he would written parts of the Bible, that he could be disqualified. It could happen. And if it could happen to Paul, it can happen to us. Oh, Paul's soul would be saved, but his life would be rendered unusable. What a tragedy that would be. We too should share that fear. Life is short. We want our lives to count for Christ. Let's not allow ourselves to fall into any kind of sin that might disqualify us. Let's not do anything stupid that would limit our usefulness.